I'll actually begin reading in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. Jesus speaking says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So today we wrap up our study of John 5. It's taken us three weeks now. And over those weeks, I think I've come more and more to see that this chapter is perhaps one of the most significant in the Gospel of John. I mean, as if we can say that any chapter is more significant than the other. This, these are the words of the Holy Spirit to us. They're all significant. But I've come to understand and, and appreciate and hopefully hopefully apprehend for myself the reality of of what jesus is doing in john 5 just to catch us up on the context if you've if you've been here you remember this but just remind us if you haven't been here this is where we've been john 5 begins with jesus healing an invalid a man that was an invalid for 38 years and he sat by the pool in bethesda waiting for the waters to be stirred in order that he could get in and be healed believing that to be the the, the means by which he would be healed and Jesus came and and healed him. And what was significant about this healing was not just the miracle of it, but it was the fact that it happened on the Sabbath, and Jesus told him to pick up his bed and, and walk, a violation of the Sabbath restrictions legislated by the, the Jewish leaders. And so that act... The, the words to that man, his, his act of healing him and then commanding him to take up his bed and walk aroused a, a hatred in the hearts of those, those Jewish leaders. And so last week we saw the, the middle section of this chapter, Jesus revealing his identity as the Son of God, as God himself to these people. He has the authority to say what he said because he is God. Josh laid that out very well for us last week understanding the authority of jesus because of who he is as god but the reason i want to draw our attention to the significance of of this chapter is having come through all of that jesus is now going to to do something very profound to these men that are they're listening to him he's going to do something that only god can do And that is he is going to expose their unbelief. If you were paying attention closely as I read through just this section of the text, you will have picked up 
on that theme. Jesus is, is calling them out for their lack of believing. He says things like, you won't believe, you don't believe, you refuse to believe. How can you believe? And so as God who sees into their hearts, he's exposing their lack of faith, their lack of believing in him. Our greatest need as human beings is what John gives as his purpose for writing his book. You remember, I, I feel like I've mentioned this verse in every message in, in John. John twenty thirty one. It's John, at the end of his book, giving the reason why he has not just written his book, but why he's included the things he's included. He says, Jesus did many other things, many other signs. But I've written these for this reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is our greatest need. Our greatest need is to have life in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us as a human being, our greatest need is to believe that Jesus Christ is who he, who he said he was, believe in the work that he accomplished for the salvation of our, our souls that we might be saved. That's our greatest need. But also therein lies our greatest problem. Because as Jesus exposes to these Jewish leaders here, our greatest problem is that we don't want to believe. None of us want to believe. None of us will believe. And in this last section of chapter 5, Jesus reveals their unbelief for what it is. This unwillingness to believe, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. That's what Jesus does here. He presents overwhelming evidence supporting what he's just told them about himself. And yet they refuse to believe, even in the face of all that evidence. I mean, it's as if we sit in a courtroom and we hear witness after witness after witness take the stand and testify that something happened. And there's no other witnesses opposing their testimony. And yet we just flat out refuse to believe that that's the truth. That's what Jesus is, is telling them here. He says, you have all of this evidence, and yet you will not believe the truth. This is the universal condition of, of mankind. This wasn't just a problem for these Jewish leaders. It's been a problem throughout the centuries, throughout all of history, from the beginning of creation, the fall of man until now. We do not want to believe in Jesus. Now, many of us sit in this room today having had our hearts already regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We have been caused by God's Spirit to believe. And what a miracle that is that, that, that God has done. If you sit here today and you are believing the things Jesus did and said it is only by the work of, of God's Holy Spirit that has quickened you, to use an old English word, to make us alive, to awaken our hearts to this truth, to remove the scales from off our eyes, to see the truth. It's, it's a miracle, the miracle of regeneration that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice that He has done that. But I'm also certain that there are some here today who, who sit here still in a state of unbelief. And even as I, I prayed a few minutes ago, you could have sat in these chairs for years, Sunday after Sunday. You could even attend a community group. You could go through Sunday school classes and hear the truth week after week after week, and yet you still refuse to believe. And for you, this, this text today, these words of Jesus are so important for you to understand. 
Because Jesus is not only exposing the unbelief of these Jewish leaders, he is exposing the unbelief that exists in our own hearts. So there are some that are still in this state of unbelief as the Jewish leaders are. And my, my plea to you is to hear the words of Jesus today. So let's look first at the evidence that Jesus lays out as he exposes their unbelief. He lays out this evidence that these witnesses that are testifying to the truth of what he is saying. Verse 31, he makes a rather enigmatic comment. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. And it's really helpful. Some of your translations may just say, my testimony is not true. But I'm reading out of the ESV, and I think they, they capture the sense of what Jesus is saying there by, by saying that his testimony, if he alone testifies, his testimony is not deemed true. And what he's doing is, he's not saying that he's a liar or that his testimony is not true. What he's saying is, you Jewish leaders who understand the law or think you understand the law, you remember Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Jesus is telling these men who know the law, they, would, they know Deuteronomy 19.15. Jesus has just testified of, of who he is and yet he understands that you're not going to believe me on, on account of just my witness. So I'm going to gather more witnesses on top of my own testimony that will then deem my testimony true. And in this passage, Jesus lays out four specific witnesses that are witnessing to his identity as the Son of God. First, he mentions the witness of John the Baptist. We see this in verses 33 and 35. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You remember back in John chapter 1, we read in the prologue that God sent John to be the forerunner of the Messiah. God sent John to testify of the coming of the Messiah. Each of the Gospels refer to John as the prophesied voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That was John's role, appointed by God to be the one who announced the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. These men even sent to John. You also remember back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist had Leaders sent from, or men sent from the Jewish leaders come to him asking him, Who are you? Are you the Christ? We've studied through how John constantly deflected attention away from himself. He says, No, I'm not the Christ. That's not me. Pointing to the Christ. That's the Christ. Follow him. These are, these are people, these men have understood, they've experienced the ministry of John the Baptist. They've heard what John the Baptist has testified. 35, verse 35 tells us that John was a burning and shining lamp given to show the way to the Messiah. The, the light imagery throughout the Gospel of John is significant. We saw that back in chapter 1 where it says John was not the light. He was not the true light. He was sent to bear witness to the light. He was a lamp whose light was derived from another source. A lamp to shine the way of, of the true light. The first, we have the, the witness of John the Baptist testifying to who Jesus was. Secondly, we have verse 36. After he has mentioned the testimony of John, he says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So we see as we look at these witnesses that Jesus moves from the lesser to the greater. There's this progression. It's almost as if he starts with his weakest argument first and works from there, building upon it. Not that the witness of John the Baptist is weak 
in any stretch. But Jesus himself says that the witness that he has is greater than John. And what is that witness? It's the works that the Father has given me to, the, to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. The witness of Jesus works. He's already affirmed this back in earlier in this chapter. If you look back to verses 16, or rather 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. In reference to what He has just done in healing that man. and Then verse 19 and 20, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these He will show Him, so that you may marvel. So Jesus was doing the works that God the Father had given Him to do. Another significant term to remember in John is is this idea of a sign. We've already seen it in a couple of of instances. Jesus giving a sign. It's, It's a work that He does that is a sign. He's already performed several signs that were intended to reveal that He's the promised Messiah. These aren't just miracles. Although they are miracles. But they're not simply a miracle. They are a sign. They are done for the purpose of revealing something about Jesus. Namely, His identity. There are seven works that John records specifically as signs. Back in chapter 2, turning the water into wine. Chapter 4, healing the official's son. Chapter 5, healing the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. The next chapter, feeding the 5,000. Chapter 6, also walking on water. Chapter 9, he heals the man who was born blind. Chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And all of those signs point to and and ultimately culminate in the greatest sign Jesus did, the resurrection of His own body from the dead. All of these signs that Jesus did, these works that He's referring to in chapter 5, verse 36, are done to show who He is. They're done to communicate that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself. So we have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of the works that Jesus is doing. Third, we have the witness of the Scriptures. Verse 39. It says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. The Scriptures that you are studying... Jewish leaders, in their day, the Old Testament Scriptures that they had, you search these, they bear witness about me. Jesus affirms here that the whole point of the Scriptures are to testify about Him. He is the central person and theme of the Bible. If you have eyes to see, it doesn't take long. Beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and God makes that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And if we have eyes to see, we see that that's talking about Christ. And all the way on through all of Israel's history, from God choosing them as a nation to delivering them out of Egypt, to settling them in the promised land, for raising them raising up a king for them. And then ultimately raising up prophets to speak the Word of God to His people and to the surrounding nations. All of that points to Christ. All of that is designed to draw our attention to something else. And after His resurrection, Jesus uses 
the scriptures to teach two of his followers what they had not yet to that point grasped. Remember Luke 24, 27? Jesus meets those disciples of his on the road to Emmaus. They were questioning why all of this had happened to the Christ. He has this conversation to them and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He revealed to them that the scriptures that they knew, that they had been studying, they were all about him. Remember also that Peter wrote regarding the scriptures that not only do they confirm the works of Jesus, but the scriptures are not man-made. They're not written. They do not originate out of the mind of man. Rather, they are the writings of God as he sent his spirit to inspire the texts that we have in our scriptures. These are God-given scriptures and they are intended to bear witness to Jesus. For those who will, who will see, those who have eyes to believe what is written here. Finally, the, the last witness. And really, this last witness is kind of the, not only is it the most significant witness, but it's, it's the one that, that has bearing on, on all of these other three. It's the witness of God the Father. Verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. This could refer to John the Baptist. I believe that it rather refers to God the Father as this other witness. We also see in verse 36, the works Jesus is doing bear witness that the Father has sent me. The Father sent Jesus to do those works. I mentioned from John chapter 1, God sent John the Baptist to bear witness. And ultimately, the, the Scriptures are the result of God's Word being communicated through human means to us. So the witness of John, the witness of Jesus' works, and the witness of Scripture are all themselves the witness of God the Father. These are the means that He has sent to bear witness to His Son. So with all of this evidence for who Jesus is, these four witnesses, why is it that these men, and why is it that many, many, many others do not believe in Him? This is where we get to the nature of unbelief. Understanding the nature of unbelief helps us understand why in the face of all that evidence people still don't believe. And as I alluded to earlier, Jesus uncovers the true nature. He exposes the true nature of these men's hearts and He exposes the true nature of, of our hearts. What Jesus' statements intertwined with all of these witnesses, what His statements to them reveal is that unbelief is never the result of a lack of information or a lack of evidence. There is no lack of evidence. That's Jesus' point here. There is no lack of evidence. But rather, unbelief is, is a, a lack of a willingness to believe. It's the result of a, a spiritual blindness in the hearts of fallen mankind. And so in one sense, no amount of evidence, no amount of biblical teaching, no amount of gospel preaching in and of itself is going to convert anybody. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit awakening their hearts to believe that they're going to come to faith in Christ. And as we observe, I have four descriptions really tied in with each of these witnesses we've just looked at. Descriptions of unbelief and how it 
how it manifests itself in these men's hearts, in their lives, and in our lives as well. And I want us to consider the ways that perhaps our hearts are susceptible to, to unbelief. Again, there, there are, are likely people in this room who, who sit in the same condition as, as these men, in a state of, of willful unbelief in the face of the truth. But again, for many of us, we, we are believers. We call ourselves believers because we believe the truth of, of who Jesus is. We believe in what He has done. We rest our eternal soul in the work of Jesus. And yet I think that there are ways that these roots of unbelief can, can creep in there. So I want us to, to consider these things and, and, and be reminded of of how these can be overcome through Christ. So first of all, under the nature of unbelief, I want us to see the, that unbelief cuts off the joy of salvation. Unbelief cuts off the joy of salvation. Where do I get that? If you look back at what Jesus says in relation to John the Baptist's testimony. He says, Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I think this is an allusion back to Psalm 132. Verses 16 and 17 say this, her priests I will clothe with salvation. This is the psalmist speaking of Zion, the city of God, populated by God's people, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. The word in the Old Testament, anointed, the Greek word translated there is Christos. Same word used for Christ. Christ is the anointed one. This is a prophecy of the Anointed One. He makes a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Does that terminology sound familiar? It's the same terminology Jesus uses to refer to John the Baptist. He is the lamp shining the light for the way of, of God's anointed. But then back in the early verse, earlier verse, verse 16 of that psalm, Those that are clothed with salvation, the saints, shout for joy. There is rejoicing among the saints who are following after the Lord's anointed. And here in verse 35 of John chapter 5, Jesus is saying, you, you saw that lamp. You had your attention pointed to my anointed. And you were even willing to rejoice for a while. So there was a period of time where these men, others, we know from the, the gospel accounts that there were times where many crowds of people were, were rejoicing at the work that Jesus was doing. They were following after Him. But there came a time where they began to, to fall away. We're going to start seeing that even in the gospel of John in coming chapters. People leaving Jesus. My mind goes to, in this context, to the parable that Jesus gives of the four soils. There is seed sown into these four soils. And the one soil, the rocky soil, remember that the seed sprouted up initially. It had life very quickly. But of course there was no root. The ground was hard. It wasn't able to grow root in that that seed eventually died. I think that's the sort of picture that we, we have as Jesus exposes this unbelief. It cuts off the joy of salvation. For those that, that do believe, there is an eternal joy in our salvation. We will dwell in Zion and rejoice eternally in the presence of our Savior. 
But what, what a tragedy it was for these men who could have been rejoicing at the work that Jesus had done. Jesus had healed a man. But on top of that, Jesus had revealed to them who he was. He told them that he was the Son of God. What a tragedy it was that these men could have been rejoicing at what Jesus had done, but instead their hearts were filled with anger and hatred. And they sought to persecute him. They sought to put him to death. And ultimately, we know they did put him to death. They crucified him. They cut off. Their, their, their hearts of unbelief cut off any joy that they could have experienced in salvation. I think there's a great danger for those who have attached themselves to a working of God, perhaps even attached themselves to a church or to a, a teacher of the Bible. And do so for a period of time. And yet, after a while, fall away from, from the truth that they have been exposed to. We have strong warnings in Scripture regarding falling away. I think even specifically the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews makes this point very clear. He talks in the early chapters of the Israel not entering, the, the rebellious people of Israel not entering the rest of God in the promised land. And he warns us to continue on lest you fail to enter into God's rest. Don't stop believing the things that you have heard. The teaching, the truth you've received, don't stop believing it. And perhaps the, the strongest statement or warning against falling away or about falling away in Hebrews chapter 6 a very difficult passage we don't have time to to deal with the passage in any length today Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 say this for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible, he says, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. They say it's a difficult text. It seems almost at first to say that you can fall away from being saved and, and then it's impossible to renew you to repentance, but... I think taking other scriptures into account, we can, we can discount that interpretation. It doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. I think what it means instead is that there are those that, for a time, ex exhibit evidence of, of salvation. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've even shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I mean, we could put this in our own words as, you know, they have joined a church. They have, they have given a public testimony, a profession of faith. They have been baptized. They have taught a Sunday school class. They have preached in church. And yet they have fallen away. And the writer of Hebrews makes a strong warning for someone like that. When they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again. Again, we don't have time to consider everything in that verse, but... The point I want to make is for us to heed the warnings of Scripture. Heed the warnings that Jesus gives to these men who believed for a while perhaps, rejoiced for a while. And yet then their, their wicked hearts took over and, and they were given over to hearts of unbelief. Refusing to believe the truth. Let this be a, a warning to, to any here who are aligning themselves to the work of God, perhaps just for some advantage that you might receive, rather than out of a believing heart that has been changed and through which you experience the joy of salvation. 
So unbelief cuts off the joy of salvation. It cuts it short. Unbelief does, secondly, unbelief does not recognize the signs that Jesus has performed. Unbelief does not recognize the signs Jesus has performed. It does not understand the works that Jesus has done. Again, Jesus performed one of these signs in this very chapter. This discourse that Jesus gives is, comes out of one of these works that he did, one of these signs that was not recognized by these men, by those that, that saw, about, saw it and heard about it. They did not perceive it for what it was, and instead their hearts filled with hatred sought to persecute Jesus for what he did. They did not recognize the works Jesus has did. Unbelief does not recognize the works that Jesus is doing. Again, the works that Jesus did and his, his verbal testimony regarding it, I think for most of us is, is clear as day. We see. But the heart of unbelief does not recognize this. In fact, the heart of unbelief refuses to believe it. They were so blind to the reality of who Jesus was. These men and others who would come along as well, they were so blind that they would eventually accuse Jesus of doing these works in the name of Satan. Their hearts were so blind they could not believe that these were the works of God. They said, surely he must be working in the power of Satan. And unbelief had so blinded them to what they were seeing with their eyes that they could not believe. Third, unbelief misunderstands the teaching of the Bible. Unbelief misunderstands the teaching of the Bible. And this statement probably is the mo- would have been the most shocking for these men. In fact, as we read it, some of the most pointed things he, he says to these men are in connection with their misunderstanding of what the Scriptures taught. I say this is shocking considering who, who it is he's speaking to. These were the, the most educated men in the law. I mean, that's how this whole problem got started. They objected to what Jesus did on the basis of what the law said. These were men that knew the law. These were men that knew the Scripture. These were men that, they had PhDs from seminaries. They knew what the Bible said. That's why they were so adamant about opposing Jesus. They, they understood the law. But in their unbelief, they, they actually misunderstood it. Jesus exposes in them the fact that they are not reading the Bible, reading the law, reading to them the Old Testament, to us the full Scripture that we have now. Jesus exposes the fact that them, they in their unbelief were not truly seeking the salvation that God had promised in His Word. In fact, there's one Jewish teacher, Hillel, had this proverb, said this, If a man has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. That was these guys. They had certainly gained for themselves words of the law. Verse 39, Jesus calls them out on that. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They think that it's in the words of Scripture, it's in the law that they have life. And Jesus goes on to say, they are bearing witness about me. Their problem is that they were looking for life in the words of Scripture rather than in the ones that those words of Scripture revealed. John Stott, who most of you probably know that name, he's a preacher the last century. 
gave this illustration of a family going on a picnic. And they, they're going along and they, they come to the sign that directs them to their destination. And they stop the car there and they get out and they have their picnic next to the signpost. And of course, we see the foolishness of that. You don't stop at the signpost as if it's your final destination. You follow that signpost on to the destination you're going to. And what the Bible consistently affirms for us is that the life-giving power of Scripture is not found in the words themselves, but it's the life-giving power the value of Scripture is found in the one that they reveal to us, Jesus Christ. So the ultimate value of Scripture is not found in how much we have read of it or how much we've memorized. Because I, I guarantee you that no matter how much you have read and memorized, you have nothing on these guys. But the value of Scripture to us as it pertains to our life, our eternal life, as Jesus speaks about. It's not found in how much we know or we can recite or how well we can police others' observance of the law. It's do we know the one of whom it speaks. Finally, in this point, look at the end of this chapter. I said this, I think, is probably the most startling, most pointed thing Jesus says to these guys. Verse 45. It says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Moses to them was one of the most, if not the most important person in their history. He, he was the one that gave them their law. This law that they were so strict in upholding. Jesus says, as it were, I don't even need to accuse you. At that day, when you stand before me, I don't even need to accuse you. Moses himself will accuse you. The one who you think you're following, the one who you think you're believing, he himself will accuse you. For if you believed Moses, and here again, he's, he's getting to the root of their unbelief. They think they believe Moses. He says, no, you don't. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Because you, you don't believe Moses at all because Moses speaks of me. Unbelief misunderstands the teaching of the Bible. And again, I think that certainly some of us here as believers, we can, we can fall into this. We can read the Scriptures as, as nothing more than a manual for how to live our life or source to find encouragement or countless other things that motivate us to read our Bible or memorize our Bible. The danger is for us to fall into this same attitude of misunderstanding what the Bible is all about. And we miss Christ often. So even as believers, my exhortation to us is when we open our Bibles, one, don't open them just out of a sense of obligation and duty. Open them up so that we can know more about our Savior we can see Him revealed more so that we can worship Him in greater ways. Finally, unbelief rejects the glory of God. Unbelief rejects the glory of God. And this is really the, the core of the whole issue. All of these other things, just like... So each of these has been connected to one of the, the witnesses. We've had the, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus' works, the witness of the Scriptures. 
Then we have the witness of, of God the Father. And, and God the Father is all about His own glory. He's all about the, the revelation of His glory. He wants the world to see His glory. He sent Jesus so that we would understand His glory. And just as the witness of God the Father was the overarching witness that sent all of the other, these other three witnesses we've seen, the rejection of the glory of God in, in the heart of one who does not believe is, is really the core issue that, that leads to all of these other symptoms of unbelief. Misunderstanding the Bible. Not recognizing the signs Jesus has done. Cutting off the joy of our salvation. All of those pictures of unbelief are rooted in their rejection of bringing glory to God. At the heart of those who reject Jesus is what some have referred to as a glory war. What that means is every, every person faces this battle within them. Who, who are you going to give glory to? Are you going to give glory to the God of heaven who alone is worthy of it? Or are we going to pursue our own glory instead? What is the motivation for our doing what we are doing? Are we doing it for our own advancement, for the praise of men? Or are we doing it truly for Christ, for His glory, so that others would see the glory of God through us? Jesus exposes these men as being lovers of other men's praise. Two weeks ago, Joseph pointed out to us, he actually drew our attention to the very end of this chapter. Where Jesus says in verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Their, their identity was wrapped up in their authority in interpreting the law and then policing everybody in accord with the law. That's where their identity came. That's where their value was, was found. Jesus tells him, how can you believe? His point is, you can't believe when you are that concerned with receiving glory from one another and not seeking the glory that comes from God. At its, at its core, unbelief is a refusal to give God the glory that is due to His name. Again, I think there's, there's ways that this can trickle into our, our own hearts, even as, even as people who desire to give glory to God. Our, our hearts have been changed. We want to glorify God. And yet, churches are full of people that, of course, we're all, we're all still we're fallen people. We still fight sin. We still seek our value and identity and belonging to a group that will affirm us and praise, them, praise us. Fuels our, our own prideful hearts. But we, all of us, whatever the condition of our heart, we all, bat, we all experience this glory war. We all battle this battle within us of are we going to glorify God or are we going to glorify Ourself. I think this also has bearing on even our expectation in testifying of the gospel to others. We've already seen how unbelief is not conquered through our words. It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. But also I think we must remember that if we 
preach the gospel, if we seek to live out the gospel, if we seek to proclaim the glory of God, if we pursue lives that that glorify God, we will not be well received. I think there is a, a temptation to think well-meaning enough, but wanting to, wanting to appeal to lost people. I mean, there's an inappropriate sense that we can want to appeal to lost people, but there's also a well-meaning sense that we, wanna, we want somebody to walk in this room and, and what we're doing appeals to them. It draws them in. I think the reality is when we understand the true nature of unbelief is that, that our words and our lives will not appeal to someone that does not believe. It will not be attractive. Jesus never meant it to be attractive. What he has promised is to awaken dead hearts and open blind eyes to love him. And that's not to say that we are intentionally rude and arrogant and offensive to people who don't know Christ. Of course not. But we have to realize that we will not be loved when we are seeking the glory of God. Rather, what we, what we tell others and what we live out ourselves is the fact that Jesus deserves our, our glory of Him. And so we live our lives in allegiance to His purposes. We abandon everything that, that we want. All our desires, we, we abandon them for the sake of, of His glory. Now often He will use our desires and He will, he will, he will give us blessings and, and we, will, we will enjoy things in Him. But ultimately, our following after Jesus is, a, is an abandonment of, of everything that we hold dear for the sake of, of Christ. And what Jesus has accomplished through the work of the Gospel has freed us from the slavery of pursuing all of these other things. Pursuing our own glory. Pursuing our own advancement. Pursuing the the acclaim of others, the appreciation of others, pursuing our own ambitions in order that we might live for His glory. We as, as God's people who have been changed by the Gospel are free from, from those pursuits. We are free to pursue the glory of God. Now as I close, I want to clarify one thing. And that is the the difference between willful, rebellious unbelief as demonstrated here and doubt that we as Christians can, can feel, can think. There is a difference between one who is willfully, rebelliously unbelieving and one who struggles to believe the things Jesus has done and yet is is working to to understand them, depending on the Spirit to to help us, to teach us. And to help us see the, this difference, I want to direct our attention to the difference between the way Jesus deals with these men in John 5 and the way that we're going to see Jesus deal with His own disciples later in this book, especially beginning in John 14. As He's in the upper room, days before He's going to die or the day before he's going to die and how does he deal with them remember the way john 14 begins don't let your hearts be troubled he's dealing with disciples who have troubled hearts he's dealing with with followers of his that have spent years with him and yet they're doubting that they they have a sense of unbelief in their heart they're questioning what Jesus is doing. Why is all of this happening? He's told them he's going to die. And they don't understand. 
There's a difference between their lack of understanding and these men's lack of understanding. There's a difference between the way Jesus speaks to these men and the way Jesus ministers to his disciples in that upper room. We're going to see that in depth when we get there. But I just want to point our attention to the way Jesus deals with them. He promises them there, and there are some well-known verses from those chapters. He promises them there, his presence with them. He tells them that he will not leave them. In fact, he tells them that he will leave them, but he's going to send a comforter to them that will teach them all of these things. He promises to give them peace when their hearts are troubled. So instead of indicting them for their unbelief, as he does these men, because again, the only one that can discern the hearts is Jesus. And these men, he discerns this willful, rebellious unbelief. But in his followers, he is encouraging them to continue believing the things they've seen and heard. And when they doubt, when they lack faith, when they go through periods of time where they have trouble believing the truth of all of this, if we are one of His, we have the Comforter. He is helping us. He's helping us in our weakness. He's helping us in growing the faith necessary to believe the things that He has said, believe the things that He has done. There's a difference between the, the, the rebellion, the wicked unbelief exhibited here in John 5 and the doubt that in periods of unbelief that we and our, our weakness as, as fallen mankind experience. For one, if you're here today and your, your heart is dead as these men were, my prayer is that God would send, as it was earlier, my prayer is that God would send His Spirit to open your eyes. To help you to see, to understand, to believe, to rejoice in Jesus. That today would be the day of your salvation. For those here that know Christ, Maybe today you're, you're doubting. You're, you lack a measure of faith that you feel you need to, to follow Him. If you're discouraged at what you believe God is doing in your life, you're having trouble believing things that He has said. First, Continue to go back to the Scripture, the Word of God that He's given to us for our hope, for our learning. And then depend upon the ministry of that Comforter, the Holy Spirit indwelling you to give continued life and faith to enable you to go on believing and loving Christ. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You that Jesus in His wisdom and discernment as, as only He has was able to speak to these men. In a way that was true, that pricked their hearts, but also speaks to us helps us understand the nature of unbelief and ultimately just causes us to rest on, on the work that only You can accomplish. So again, my prayer is that You would awaken dead hearts today there be those here that do not believe, will not believe. Pray for your spirit to awaken their heart. For those here who 
are your children who are weak, who are doubting, who are discouraged, who are troubled. Pray that that Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would minister grace and truth in their hearts. That you would use brothers and sisters in Christ to to be a means of encouragement. You would use your word to instruct them. They too might regain that joy of their salvation. The joy of, of believing and trusting in Christ. And we pray all of this knowing that when you accomplish these things, we can only say that it was your doing. And you will receive glory for the life-giving and life-changing works that you accomplish in our midst. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.